I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to do the whole chapter today. Uh, when we're done with this sermon, we'll have two more sermons left in our series in 2 Timothy, Guard the Gospel. For, for those of you that haven't been with us, uh, we're at the end of a trilogy of series. We started with Jonah and the angry prophet. Jonah was used by God, blessed by God, saw a whole city repent because of his preaching, yet was angry at the beginning of the book, angry at the end of the book. We went from there to 2 Corinthians, talking about Paul being content in, in everything. So we went from the angry prophet to Paul who was content in everything, Paul who was enjoying the blessings of God and had life really quite a bit rougher than Jonah did. And now we're into Paul's final letter to anybody, and it's to Timothy, his protege. Paul is awaiting execution, and his ministry's coming to an end. He's about to stand before the Lord, and he wants to convey what is important to Timothy, his protege, whom he's left in charge of the church at Ephesus. So we're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. Let me read it, and then we'll, we'll go through it. But understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Yanez and Yambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as it was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. It's in Lakewood, Colorado, named Jack Phillips. Jack Phillips owns a, a bakery called the Masterpiece Cake Shop. This is a story very similar to the one that we shared a couple weeks ago about the lady, uh, the couple in Oregon that had a great shop. Well, five years ago, Jack refused to make a cake for a same-sex couple. 
and they filed suit and the Colorado Civil Rights Commission ruled that Jack had violated the rights of this couple and had discriminated against them. Well, that stayed in the courts for almost five years. It eventually ended up before the Supreme Court of the United States. And the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that the Court of Colorado did not treat Mr. Phillips neutrally. Now, we all celebrated last week, but I, I, I need to give you a caution here. It, it was a little bit of a hollow victory, and it was based on the court's ruling that Phillips' beliefs were, listen to this, were despicable, unsubstantial, and insincere. So what the Supreme Court of the United States ruled was that he hadn't been treated fairly. They didn't say who was right and who was wrong. They just said he had been treated fairly. And they had an addendum to the judgment. They said that Mr. Phillips should stop discriminating against everybody. So the final chapter in Masterpiece Cake, what is it, Masterpiece Cake Shop, hasn't been written yet. But what I want to share with you is not the fact that this happened, we're familiar with it, but what happened afterwards, because there's something really amazing. Immediately after the Supreme Court handed down his decision, the media descended on the Masterpiece Cake Shop. And uh, what they found was his business had quadrupled, it had quintupled. He had so much business from supporters that he was bringing in friends and people from the church to help him wait on the counters. Uh, and of course, as the media descended, they set up their cameras and everything, well, the protesters showed up again as well. And they were in force. There were a number of them out there. And so what did Jack do? These people had threatened his business. They had threatened his lifestyle. He had the, the whole gamut of things were going on. There were phone calls in the middle of the night, stones through the, the window of the bakery, uh, death threats, the whole thing. What did he do? You know what he did? He made cookies for him. He made cookies for him. He went out to the protesters with a tray of freshly made cookies and cupcakes, and he offered to them. And the video is really kind of amazing because they didn't know what to do with that. The world doesn't know what to do with grace, brothers and sisters. Okay, they're standing there, and you can see a couple of them have the cookies in their hand. They're like, do, do, am I supposed to eat this, or what, what do I do? Some of them were mad. Some of them rejected the cookies. Jack just stood there with this smile on his face, radiating the love of Christ to these people who were threatening him. Now we need to think about that for a second because this is the heart and soul of what is here in 2 Timothy. Jack was living his theology. He was using applied theology. He wasn't just reading the book, he was walking it out. There's a vital lesson we have to learn from Jack in this. So let's take a quick look at where we've been in 2 Timothy so that we can get a bead on this, okay? Part two, the part right after the introduction and the background of, first, of 2 Timothy, ask that question, do we live our theology? And why is that question even important? Well, it's important because we're in a battle. We're in a, the, the world is turning against the church. Now, it's not time to circle the wagons. It's not time to, to begin fighting back. We'll talk more about that. 
but we're in this battle. And then part three was, well, how do we fight the battle? And that's when we got uh, a, a glimpse at the idea that maybe this isn't what, exactly what we think it is, the type of war that we think it is. We fight that battle with love, with compassion, with mercy, and with the grace that we've received. Now, part four was, okay, we get that, but can you give me a little bit more detail about what these weapons are? How does this work? And in part four, Timothy finds out what what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to present ourselves as one approved, approved by our God, approved by those who are watching us, those who are looking for how we react to these things. Are we going to be godly? We're going to be just like everybody else. We're supposed to rightly handle the word. We're supposed to depart from iniquity. We're supposed to shun sin. And we are supposed to cleanse ourselves from everything that is dishonorable. In other words, we have to take conscious part in our sanctification. We have to participate in the process that God is putting us through and making us holy. And in doing that, we are to pursue four things. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And in doing that, we are to be four things. We are to be kind to everyone. We are to be able to teach, able to express ourselves. We're not all going to be preachers and Sunday school teachers, but we should be able to articulate the gospel and the change we've gone through. We should be patiently enduring evil, not returning evil for evil. And we should be correcting opponents with what? Gentleness. Now, all those, all those tactics, all those weapons are unconventional. They're counterintuitive. They defy the reasoning of the world. And I believe if we were honest with ourselves, we would, we would admit that they're somewhat contrary to our nature. These are not the things we want to do when somebody's giving us a hard time. This is not the way we want to react when somebody throws a stone through the window of our business or tells us that our, our beliefs are unsubstantiable. That's not the way we want to react. We want to fight the way the world fights. Paul says, don't do that. Be different. Be different than the world. Now, that brings us up to our passage for today. Why? Why don't we fight the way the world fights? Why don't we use the world's tactics? Why don't we, like everybody else, why don't we just reach out and get our pound of flesh when somebody hurts us? I mean, the Bible says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, doesn't it? A gross distortion of that quote. All that quote's meant to say is that the punishment is to fit the crime. It doesn't say that vengeance is ours, brothers and sisters. Vengeance is whose? Mine, says the Lord. Amen? So chapter 3 is going to delineate the difference between the people of the world in verses 1 through 9 and the people of God in verses 10 through 17. We're going to see this contrast. This is part 5 of guard the gospel. I'm calling this last days because I like the phrase. It's not the main point of the sermon. But we'll get a chance to talk about that in just a second. So let's take a look at these people of the world in verses 1 through 9. Paul tells Timothy about the last days in verse 1. Now, as soon as I say last days, anybody who's ever read any of those books in the 80s or seen those movies, you remember those Christian movies where everything's blowing up and all this stuff? 
if, if you ever read Hal Lindsey and some of the others, we've got an idea what the last days are. And these things are going to happen, these things are going to happen, and these things are going to happen. And then it'll be the last days. And, and there's going to be some tribulation. And, you know, we all know what that looks like. And the Lord's going to come back, maybe the beginning, maybe the end, uh, maybe sometime in the middle. We argue a lot about that. And we think that the last days are something that's going to happen in the future, that they haven't happened yet. Now, we know that's true because we've all been taught that certain things have to happen before the last days come. They've got to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. They've got to reinstitute the sacrifice. There's got to be two witnesses identified. They're going to get hurt, shot in the head, something like that. They're going to lie in the streets. And if you ever watch Left Behind, you've got the whole scenario right there. Yeah, it's funny because we, we, we've been taught that. It's kind of ingrained in us. But we've also been taught that the Lord's return is what we call imminent, which means it could happen at any time. And we all say, you know, the Lord can come back at any time. The wink of an eye, just like that. Bang, bang, bang. He could be here any time. But we don't really think that, do we? Because in the back of our minds, we're saying, well, I don't know. They haven't rebuilt the temple yet. Not coming back today. Yet the Bible tells us that his return is imminent. So we have this view of the last days. But i got to tell you something. That view of the last days is something that's going to happen in the future. just isn't coincident with Scripture. It's not in harmony with Scripture. In Scripture, the last days start at the ascension of Christ into heaven. Now some people, some theologians will call this the church age. But we are in the last days. I know it's been over 2,000 years. Seems like an awful long time for the last days. But this is it. We are living in the last days. And Paul wants Timothy to understand this. That these are the last days I'm talking about. And there are times of difficulty. There are times of, you, know, you can call it tribulation. And Paul, Paul wants Timothy to understand the environment that he's in. So he, he describes the people of the world in the last days. And the, the list of attributes is breathtaking. But as we go through it again, I just want you to look around you. Take a look at the newspaper this afternoon. What's on your feed on Facebook or your news feed on, on the internet or on your phone there? And tell me if this doesn't describe the day that we're in right now. People are going to be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, self-centered, arrogant, self-filled, abusive, disobedient to their parents. And all the parents are going, yeah. Ungrateful, not appreciating what they've been given. Unholy, ungodly, heartless, unappeasable. Boy, i got to tell you something. If, if one word were to, were to characterize the environment, the cultural environment we're in right now, it would be unappeasable. Nobody's happy about anything. Okay? Take, take the, the political sides, two, three sides, whatever. I'm going to tell you something. One, one political party could stand up tomorrow and come up with a can cure for cancer, uh, feed the, the entire world, end famine in the world, and, and bring peace and, and love to the world. And the other party would stand up and go, well, we don't like the way you did it. And it doesn't matter what party, they're all the same. We are unappeasable. Young people are unhappy with what the old people are doing. Old people are unhappy with what the young people are doing. Unappeasable. Unable to be satisfied. Never enough. 
slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than God. And having the appearance of godliness, having the appearance of godliness, did you know that a major denomination last week, one that's been around for since the Reformation, changed their generic prayer and now includes, in, as recipients of God's grace, all faiths and all religions. And they, they mentioned Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus. There are many ways to God, not just one. Having the appearance of godliness, having the appearance of goodness, I mean, take it out of the church. And you can go, you can go anywhere this morning and hear somebody say, well, I believe in the inherent goodness of man. I believe everybody's good in their heart. Sometimes they don't act that way, but I believe everybody's good. What the scripture tells us is that everybody's lost. Having the appearance of godliness, yet denying his power, yet denying his capability to redeem, denying his capability to forgive, denying his capability to transform us. Now verse 5 says to avoid such people. We've got to be careful with this because it's not telling us to stay away from them. It's not telling us to separate ourselves from the world. We are in the world but not of it. We are the witnesses. We are ambassadors of this world. We live in this world. We're to take God's message to the people of this world. So he's not saying don't have nothing to do with them, but avoid means turn away from them. Go in another direction. Do not follow after them. What Paul's trying to say is don't do what they do. Don't look at them and think, well, they're getting away with it. I should get away with it. Don't look at them and say, well, they're doing that. I'm going to respond in kind. We don't do what they're doing. We don't follow after them. We don't take the path that they're taking. We don't act like they act. Now, that, that, that list of qualities is not exhaustive, but it's meant to show us that the people of the world have hardened hearts. They are self-consumed. And we see the results of their self-interest in verse 6. They are always learning, but never arriving at the knowledge of the truth. So they're not stupid people. They're sophisticated. They might be academics. They might be professionally successful. They're always learning. They're hungry for knowledge, but they never get to the truth. They never get to the point of knowing that God is, is the one God, that our way through salvation is Jesus Christ alone. They never arrive at that truth. So the things, the things that they're consumed with are worldly. They're not eternal things. They're fleeting of profit. They have nothing to do with the gospel. They have nothing to do with the word of God. Paul says that Giannis and Yambres were, were, were like this. Unless you're familiar with Exodus chapter 7, you probably don't know who they are. But those are the two guys when Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And he says no. And God begins sending the plagues through Moses on Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh calls two sorcerers, two magicians. And these are the two guys that come. And you know what? They do a pretty good job. They go toe-to-toe with Moses. Moses does this, they do that. Moses does this, they do that. And they go really well up for the first few plagues up until the dust cloud turns into gnats. 
okay? The dust cloud turns into gnats. Now listen carefully. They can do their sorcery. There's something going on there. What they can't do, brothers and sisters, they can't create. They can't transform. They have no power of God in them. When it gets down to transforming dust into gnats, when it gets down to bringing life out of inanimate uh, material, they can't do it. That's Giannis and Yambres. They don't have the power of the living God undergirding everything that they do. They're not transformed into such. They're lost. They may be sorcerers. They may be able to do some neat stuff. But they're just as lost as they've ever been. Now, Paul compares them to the people of God. And he says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. In other words, Paul is saying to Timothy, now he's speaking to Timothy individually here, so we need to understand what's happening. He's saying, look, you've seen how I live. You've seen everything that I've gone through. Imitate me. Now, this is not Paul being ignorant, not saying, I'm the template. I'm better than everybody else. It's because in other uh, scripture, we see Paul saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul's saying, I've done everything I can to live like Christ. I've done everything I can to preach the gospel. I've done everything I can to be an example of what godly living is like. Timothy, do the same thing. Do the same thing. You know how that's worked. You know how I've lived. You've seen everything I've done. You've seen the results of that. Things have not gone well for me. I've been persecuted. You know what just happened in these three cities. And if you imitate me as I imitate Christ, then you will receive the same grace that I've received. See, by now, Timothy would have read Paul's letter to the, the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, it would know that Paul is content. Even though things haven't been successful, even though things haven't gone the way Paul wanted them to go, maybe, Paul has been happy with what God has given him. He's living in peace. He's living in the joy of the Lord. His contentment is not based on his circumstances or how the world receives him. It's based on his relationship with Christ. Paul's saying, do that, and you'll be the recipient of grace. Now, I like that. I, I love that message. That appeals to me inside. It should appeal to you, too. Because when I interpret that, I think, well, if I just have a relationship with Christ, everything's just going to be fantastic. All my problems are going to go away. I'm going to feel good about myself. I'm going to be a holy guy. I'll walk around with the robes and everything, praying all day long. People look at me and go, gee, I wish I could be like him. And just thousands are going to come to the Lord because of how pious I am. Sometimes I think that that's the way the church sells the gospel. Just get saved, go to heaven. Everything's going to be great. And you know what? That, that might hold up just a little bit if you didn't read the next verse. Because the next verse, Paul lays this bomb on him. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. You will receive grace. And then he says in verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ... What? All? Did it say all? Who, now, you know... Sometimes 
sometimes when you see all in Scripture, it doesn't mean all. When, when Scripture tells us that all abandoned Jesus Christ, we know that all didn't abandon him. There were some there, were some there at the foot of the cross, mostly women. John was there. Okay, so sometimes all doesn't mean all. But when Scripture gets specific about it, it does. And Paul is being very specific here. He says, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ will be what? Persecuted. Well, what kind of recruiting is that? (laughs) Come on in, we're all being persecuted. You're next. Come on in, come to Jesus Christ. Life's going to be rough. Come on in, come to Jesus Christ. You'll be outcast. You might lose your job. You might lose your friends. You might lose your house. You might lose your family. Come on in. You know, if this were the only place that I saw this, I might be able to write it off and say to myself, I'm probably not understanding this very clearly. I'll come back to it and study it later because I'm sure it doesn't mean that if I get saved, I'm going to be persecuted. Why would God want me to do that? Luke talks about it. Matter of fact, he talks about it in the passage. It deals with this very situation that Paul is in right here. Paul and Barnabas have been in Derby, um, where they've been well-received. And in Acts 14.21, it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. Those are three cities in our passage. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So this isn't, this isn't an easy path. This is not an easy thing we've been called to do. This is hard. This is difficult. It's, and it's not necessarily that the world is always going to be against us. We haven't all experienced that. We may at some point in the future. But it's hard on a number of levels. We have to change our way of thinking. We have to change the way we behave. We have to submit ourselves to God forming and shaping us into His image. That's not easy. We have to forsake our old nature and embrace the new nature that's being uh, shaped in us. We have to embrace the new heart we have. We have to act counterintuitively. We have to act counter to the way we feel. We have to set aside those things that made us angry. We have to set aside those things that tempted us. We have to set aside those things that are not godly. We have to actively participate in our sanctification. Now, God's got this fantastic promise to us that he's going to complete it regardless of how much we participate. But I'll tell you this, our level of participation will determine on how easy or hard our walk is in the meantime. We can walk in God's blessing and his peace like Paul did, or we can just be mad all the time and upset because we're resisting God's move in our lives like Jonah did. It's a hard walk. But there are rewards, there are blessings. And the immediate blessing that we get is peace. The immediate blessing that we get is joy. We're able to go through the hardship. We're able to go through the tribulation and still have peace, still maintain our trust and our faith in our Father in heaven. So Luke talks about it. And you know what? So does Peter. 
And I think Peter has this in mind. He had seen these scriptures by then. This is towards the, the end of the first century. In 1 Peter 4.12, he said, Beloved, do not be surprised. Listen to what he says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Not if, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening so far. He said, what, you know what he said? He said, don't, don't run into these trials and look up and go, why me? Don't run into these hardships and look up and go, Lord, what are you doing? Give me a break. I don't understand what's going on. Job did that. didn't work very well for him. He said, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He said, the good stuff's coming. Trust God. So according to Luke and Paul and Peter, as Christians, we'll have hard times. Living in this world is not going to always be easy. Back in 2 Timothy 3, as we are guaranteed these hard times, these other people, these false teachers, listen to this, while evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, not much is going to happen to them. They're lying. They're being lied to. They bought into the lie. They're deceiving other people, but they're going to go on. Where's the fairness in that? Then, then verse 14 begins with these words. And notice Paul is contrasting again, comparing the people of the world with the people of God. He says in verse 14, but as for you, he's saying, Here, Timothy, you know all this? You know what you're called to? It's going to be hard. Uh, those people that oppose you sometimes are going to look a bit more successful than you do. Uh, don't let that affect you. As for you, and, and then he tells them that he wants Timothy to do what he wants to do in response to this hardship that's going to come upon Timothy. And, and I want you to keep in mind the environment Tim, Timothy is in as Paul utters these words because his mentor, the guy he's followed his entire life, the guy who has shaped his walk in faith, the guy he's dependent on, his mentor is about to be executed for his faith. The church that Timothy has been called to lead is giving him a hard time. Timothy's a young guy, and he's struggling a little bit with the leadership of the church. And on top of that, the church is being persecuted. Nero's beginning to go through the Roman Empire and search out the Christians and torture them and kill them. The, the, the days ahead promise to be filled with evil and filled with these self-centered people that are against God. So Paul is saying, Timothy, I want you to take this over. It's a real mess. They're coming to kill me, and it looks like everything's falling apart, and I'm putting you in charge, brother. Take care of it. So what is Timothy going to do? He could be overwhelmed. He could say, I don't know what to do. I've got like three years at this. What do I do? And, and not only does Timothy know, need to know what to do, but this isn't just for person, uh, Timothy's personal edification because Timothy's being called to teach the church. 
So whatever Paul is telling Timothy to do, Timothy has to turn around and tell the church to do. So Paul is dying, and here it is. What do you do when I leave? All this stuff's going on, Timothy. I've been preparing you for this moment. Here it is. Here's what I want you to do when I'm gone. One, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And number two, be acquainted with the sacred writings. Anybody know what the sacred writings are? I can't hear you. Scripture, Old Testament scripture. You know what? There's got to be more, isn't there? I mean, it can't be that simple. It sounds simple, but we've got a complex problem here. It's going to call for a complex solution. Number one, we are to continue. Okay, what, what does that mean? It means that we are to live what we've learned. We're to continue learning. We're to continue going deeper, but not just to acquire knowledge, but to live it out, to allow it impact how we relate to the people around us. We are to live what we have learned. And number two, we are to be acquainted with the sacred writings, acquainted with Scripture. Why? Well, you know, there's got to be more than that, but listen to this. The Scripture is the answer to everything because the Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. Now, you put those two things together, and, and it, it, what Paul's really saying is we are to know and apply the Bible to everything that we do. Okay, but Paul, that, that doesn't sound like much of a strategy. I've had people tell me, Scripture's not sufficient for everything. It is. Why do we know Scripture is sufficient for everything? We don't need all these help. We don't need these outside strategies. We don't need these outside influences because of verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. How much Scripture? Oh, listen to me. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Now, before we go further, I just want you to stop for a second because... We can look back and go, well, didn't those dopes know that? Okay, but you've all been in the Bible study. You've all heard it from time to time. You've all heard somebody read a difficult passage of Scripture and then say, this doesn't apply to us. This is for unbelievers. So we don't have to listen to it. Paul says all Scripture is breathed out and profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see what's happening here? See what Paul's saying? The people of God are called to be the people of the Word, not the people of the world. We're called to be people of the Word, not people of the world. And we are to be characterized, guided, and formed by the Word of God. It's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 
and knowledge of the word of God will cause his people to be complete. Greek word, adios, here. It means to be totally qualified. Knowledge of the word of God it will cause his people to be equipped, et cetera, okay? This is outfitted. You get a picture of a soldier standing here with all the equipment that he, that he needs to fight the battle. Okay, there's a lot of overlap between the two words. Paul's not repeating himself. He's using them together. It's almost as if Paul is saying, the man or woman of God may be competent, having been made very competent, the way Spiro Zodiades puts it. Competent and having been made extremely competent. Competent for what? Competent for every good work. Well, what is a good work? Good is agathon. Every virtuous, morally pure, godly work. The people of God are people of his word, and through that word, they're competent to do the work that God calls them to do. And therein is the difference between the people of the world and the people of God. People of the world are self-centered, self-consumed, People of God are focused on God. They're competent to do His work. It's eternal work. It's not worldly work. It has eternal impact. What do we do with that? Well, as the world stands up and opposes us, we approach them with love, gentleness, self-control, sacrifice, and grace. And humility. We've been recipients of grace. We're supposed to be vessels of grace. Those are the weapons we fight with. Now, that doesn't make sense. And we say, why? Why do we have to fight unconventionally? Well, we have to fight unconventionally, brothers and sisters, because we've been changed, because we've been transformed, because of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We're being conformed to His image. We're being drawn to the Father. We're being made like Him. We're supposed to be a billboard. We're supposed to be putting Him on display. When people see us, they should see Jesus Christ. They should see that we are different than the world, that we act differently in the world. We fight differently because we've been transformed. What does that transform? transformation look like? It looks like Jack Phillips handing out cookies to his enemies. He sets the bar high. I'll bet you any money, uh, you know, I know that the cookies were the fresh ones made. I'll bet they were the best cookies he made all day long. And he took them out to the people that were trying to destroy him and he said, this is what grace looks like. This is what the love of Christ looks like. I know you hate me. They hated him too. I know you reject me. They rejected him too. And he looks down from the cross and says, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's us, brothers and sisters. That's us. When the world comes against us, will we be Jonah, angry at everything? We'll be Paul, content with everything. Guard the gospel. Guard it with everything you have. But don't just guard it, live it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that we've received. We thank you for this transforming power. We thank you, Lord, that you are sanctifying us. You are leading us, Father. You are forming us. We're not yet perfect, Lord, but you're going to get us there. 
It may happen in glory, Father, but we look forward to that day and we put our faith and our trust in You. Lord, give us the strength to follow You diligently, to be those ambassadors of Your love that You've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.